Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. Hello, Anxiety Sisters, and welcome to our show. As you already know, Mags and I are book people through and through. In fact, we both read obsessively, not just neuroscience and mental health studies, but also fiction, poetry, essays, memoirs, and everything in between. Our guest today is both a celebrated member of the literary world, as well as a lifelong anxiety sister. I read Mary Laura Philpott's Bomb Shelter last spring, and it settled in my gut for weeks and weeks after I finished it, which is what all the best books do. My mind just didn't want to let it go. So I bought it on Audible, and I listened to Mary Laura read her own memoir, and I have to say it was even better the second time around. Now, I probably can't rave any better than the New York Times or NPR or the Washington Post, but I can say that Mary Laura's work is particularly relevant to those of us who live with anxiety in general and perfectionism in particular. Did I mention her writing is hilarious? I'm talking snort seltzer from your nostrils while driving on the highway funny and oh, so honest. So without further ado, we welcome Mary Laura Philpott to the spin cycle. Hi, Mary Laura. Hi, I just had to like purposely quiet myself not to laugh out loud when you said the snorting seltzer out your nose on the highway. <laughs> True story is- was on Highway 76 <laughs> and it was lemon seltzer. And we were even listening to a chapter this morning. Oh, yeah. I, I, and you were like cackling really yeah, loud. Yeah, I cackle loudly. I, when... I was, yes. Oh. So funny. <laughs> I love awesome. that. I love that. Thank you. We always start by asking our guests to share a little about their anxiety journey and i don't know if you can remember the first time you felt really anxious maybe in your childhood or <laughs> when it all started for you yeah yeah i honestly can't remember a time when anxiety was not with me like when i i remember being teeny little i was an anxious teeny little person i remember being anxious when my mom brought home my baby brother and we're, you know, we're almost three years apart, but not even. So I can remember being that age and being nervous that my parents would stop loving me because they had a new baby. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I remember that coming up in childhood. Like, do they, you know, are we competing for our parents' love? I was always nervous about, um, gosh, everything. I was just a nervous kid. But at the exact same time, I was. A, a really kind of happy-go-lucky, funny kid too. The, like those things have always been right there together, and they seem like opposites, but they've always been right there. I was always smiley and and cracking jokes and being silly, and then also afraid the sky would fall at the same time. That sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's very much. Does Abby. It? That sounds just like that's me. very much Abby. Okay, okay, I'm a little different, but that very much Abby, because um, she she identifies with a lot of. Yes, of you, I a think. lot of a lot of things that you share in your memoirs, uh, particularly about your perfectionism and your, you know, you're striving to do it right. I'm right there with you, sister. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm not alone. And then there and then there's Mags. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I have anxiety, but not perfectionism. That's okay. Not, that is not the piece of it I have. Well, it comes in many flavors, as we yeah. know. Yes, it does. So okay. let's talk about the title of your latest book, Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives. What a fantastic encapsulation of living with anxiety. Thank you. Do you know, I love, I love coming up with titles. I have titled many of my friends' books. I, I have a drawer full of titles. If I could just write enough books to put with all the titles, I love titles, but. Well, you, I have, call you for our next book. We did <laughs> not like our first title. We didn't Please do. We didn't. Our editor picked our title. Please do. I love to help people with titles, but what gets me every time is the subtitle. I, but that's really hard. It's hard to hit upon just the right phrase. And both times I had pages and pages of terrible ideas. And when I finally hit upon love time and other explosives. I re I remember like jumping out of my chair. I was so happy <laughs> that I had actually a good subtitle idea after, you know, 400 bad ones. It felt like such relief. So thank you for perfect. saying that. It's really perfect because I mean, if you think about it, what is more explosive than love or time? I mean, yeah. That I just that was very <laughs> profound to me and and even just the term bomb shelter. I mean, you do explain in your book where that comes from. It had something to do with your dad. I'm not going to ruin it for everybody, but bomb shelter for anxiety sufferers, it can very much describe what we're looking for all the time. Yes. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That makes me so happy. Yes. So, really, really good. Yeah, definitely. Because we definitely, as anxiety sufferers, feel like we want to be put in a safe place and the people we love put in a safe place. And yeah, everybody yeah. There. keep everybody. <laughs> That's right. That's the magical thinking at the heart of a lot of anxiety is like, yeah. if I can just foresee every possible catastrophe and magically solve it in advance, I will keep both myself and everyone I love safe and happy forever. And so it's my job to be constantly thinking of every awful thing that could happen because that's what's going to save everybody. It's my job to be the bomb shelter for everybody. It's nuts. It doesn't work that way. But that's what that's the kind of weird little magical thinking that comes along with anxiety that I that I struggle with constantly, I as you know. Think I think you just summarized 75 percent of a quarter of a million community members' feelings about how anxiety feels. It yeah, feels yeah. like your job. To yes. Not only yourself. In fact, once you're a parent, it's not even yourself. It's everyone around you that's important to you. Your parents, your children, your family, your friends, you, your pets, everyone. You, you are responsible. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it only takes like one time of of being kind of proven right to just make it even worse like if there's one time that you let down your guard and you and you say to yourself you know what i'm just going to be a relaxed person i'm not going to sit here and try to think of everything awful and prepare for everything awful but then something awful happens yep it, then your the little anxiety part in the brain goes see see what happened when you let your guard down now you've got to go into turbo gear and really imagine every possible bad thing that could happen it's I talk about this with my therapist all the time when she's like, you you know, you have to stop telling yourself every bad story you can think of because you're responding emotionally to those bad made up stories. So it's a, it's a process. I'm still working through it. Obviously. We all are. And my grandmother once said that if you're always thinking that the worst thing's going to happen once in a while, you'll be right. 
It, it's so true. Yeah. It's you know, so your true. Bad you're bound to be right. Like even like if you can't tell time, you're going to be right twice a day. Right. So it's, like, right. You know, it's the same thing. If you're ca catastrophizing and Mags and I have PhDs in catastrophizing. So, you know, we, we like to tell people we hold the patent on anxiety, mm. um, but, <laughs> but we don't because we have this huge community who feels the exact same way. And I yeah. think what you're saying resonates and particularly with parents. And before we get to parenting, because that's a very big piece of, of what you write about, I want to talk about another excellent title of yours. Yes. Your first memoir, I Miss You When I Blink. And when I read that title, before I read the book, I just looked at the title and thought about it. And I said, oh, this is a great mantra we're huge believers in self-talk. Yes, yes. I just wanted you to explain that title a little bit to the listeners. Yeah. Especially the part where you talk about how you miss your other selves when like that that was so yeah. powerful. I love that. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm gl I'm glad that even before you read the book it had some resonance for you. I love when that happens. Um so I miss you when I blink. I can say without any arrogance at all is a wonderful title because I did not make it up. Um uh, I borrowed it from um, my oldest child, my son, when he was little, he said it one day when I was working in my office and he was scribbling on a notepad on the floor and he was writing a little poem and it was total nonsense. It was like, I miss you in the sink and I skate around the rink and I miss you when I blink, but he was saying it out loud. And when he said that phrase, I miss you when I blink, I was like, wait, what, what did you just say? And he was so delighted that I, he had gotten my attention. He said, I miss you when I blink. And I still have that little poem. It's somewhere in this very messy office where I'm sitting right now. I saved it forever. Um, I, and I put it actually at the time up on the wall in my office at the time because I just loved it. And so I walked past that piece of paper every day for years when I was walking to, you know, sit down at my desk to work. And so in that way that, you know, radio songs kind of do sometimes, it came to represent a feeling completely outside and beyond anything he could have possibly meant at age six. But to me at the time, and I was like mid to late thirties um, at that point in adulthood where the momentum of all the firsts has started to slow down that momentum that just kind of carries you through almost without thinking where you're like, I got to get through school and then I got to get a job and then I got to get another job and I'm going to get married. I'm going to have a baby. I'm going to have another baby. I'm going to buy a house. You know, you do all these things and then you have a minute to think and look around and actually look at where you've landed and go, wait, is this where I wanted to end up? Um, mm -hmm. And as I was feeling that, is this where I wanted to end up? Is this how I wanted my life to be feeling? I had that little phrase on the wall. And so it came to represent what I was feeling, which was the, the when I blink part to me meant how fast time goes. Like, I'd be like, I just blinked and suddenly I'm this like, grown woman with like, you know, taxes and a mortgage and stuff. <laughs> and, and the, I miss you part at that time for me represented the selves I had not become mm -hmm. and also the self I had been in the past. So I was at that, that phase that it hits people at all kinds of different times. I actually think it hits people at a lot of different times in life. But for me, it was late thirties where I was kind of looking back at who I had been and all these ideas of who I might be and comparing those to where I was and going, how, how did, how did I go from there to here? And are there elements of who I was before that I want to bring back to my life? And if so, how do I do that? Like just logistically in my real life, how do I arrange my everyday existence so that I can be more true to who I really feel like I am? Mm -hmm. So that was just a lovely, amazing little kid phrase 
that I borrowed with his permission when he was older for the title of that book about that phase in my life. He's a very wise soul. Interesting. Because if you think about it, that's such a better way of saying, you know, be here now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so much yes. more tangible, right? Because everything is so, everything goes by in a blink. Yes. And, and I think for anxiety sufferers, we're so busy, we're focused so much on the future or we're ruminating about the past and things that we're upset about or regretting or wanting to change that we sometimes forget to be right here. Yeah, you know? it's true. And, and it's I, true. Do that. I should I should just own that and say I forget to be right here. Well, I <laughs> love that idea that you know we all have all these aspects to ourselves, right? And then it's like we we sort of had to pick and choose along the way, but sometimes it didn't even feel like we were picking and choosing. Sometimes it it feels like we fall into a role, right? And, yeah. Yeah. And then you kind of look back at your younger self, and you know I'm thinking. Oh, when I was 25, how would I would have reacted to where I am at 55? Yes. You know, like, yes. And how did that happen? And did I make those choices or did they just sort of happen to me? You would have you right. been very upset about your neck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're both very upset about our necks. I have that book right oh, over yeah, here yeah, it's the, in my little stack. It's one of my favorite titles. Feel bad about my neck and other thoughts on being a woman. Yes, that, that's from Nora Ephron, for those of you who don't know. One of our all-time favorites. And it's a great, oh. it's so funny. You know, many of us in the Anxiety Sisterhood, we do a lot of catastrophizing around something happening to our kids. Yeah. I am known for that, that I, if my kids have a fever, I have to sleep in the same room. I have to bring them downstairs and sleep in the same room with oh. them because I'm so... <laughs> paranoid about what's going to happen at the, during the night. And and we're always co coaching anxious parents to move away from that tendency to go to the worst case scenario. And we're always coaching each other to do that as well. And then in bomb shelter, you talk about your son having a seizure and, and needing to call 911 in the middle of the night, which I'm sure was absolutely, and you talk terrifying. about how terrifying that is. And I know he, he, for people who haven't read the book yet, he was diagnosed with epilepsy, which means you've had to sort of learn how to tolerate a certain amount of uncertainty. With yes. And so we had a bunch of questions about how your son is doing, of course. That's okay. the first thing we both said to yeah. each other. And second, <laughs> you know, how you have learned to manage this anxiety of having a child who has a real chronic health condition. Yeah. It's, um, you're right. It's such a lesson in accepting uncertainty because there is nothing I or he can do to make it go away. I mean, he, he takes really great medicine every single day. He's wonderful about taking it. And that does control his seizures. He's 19 years old. He's doing well. His medicine works great. So I can begin with once upon a time, this mother witnesses this thing happen to her child and it's terrifying. And I decided to end it at, we have now reached the point where he is ready to leave home. Mm -hmm. And so here is this two-year encapsulated period where within those two years, I am constantly thinking about, he's going to be going soon. He's going to be going soon. How do I get him ready? How do I make sure he's safe? How do I wrap him in enough bubble wrap that he can go out into the world and be fine? Um, and I, I wanted to end it there because I really did want to create 
a story about what that uncertainty feels like. I didn't want to get to the end and go, and in the end, he was fine and it was all great. I, I didn't want the point of the book to be, well, what happened to the kid? Or, well, what was the ending? Or well, how did the mom, you know, learn to not be anxious? I really wanted to let this illustrate what I call it the bubble of uncertainty because I think we have these in our lives where there's a period of time where you just do not know what's going to happen. I wanted to show with a story what that felt like. So it does end with, okay, he's getting ready to leave home. Mm -hmm. I sure hope it goes great. So I have had a lot of people, you know, write in and go, is he okay? (laughs) I mean, I know that was the point, but like, is he okay? He's great. He's wonderful. He's, he's doing well. Thank goodness. But how did you learn to manage that uncertainty uh, sort of function on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I mean, you kind of see as you go through bomb shelter, as you read the book, you see that, that me character trying every different thing she can try mm-hmm. to, to, to manage it. And, you know, you see me try meditation, which I keep coming back to, like I meditate and I meditate and I meditate, things go great. And then I get cocky and I stop meditating. And then I find myself waking up earlier and earlier and earlier with racing thoughts. And I'm like, why is this happening? Oh, I stopped meditating. So you see me try that. You see me try, um, you know, this voracious gathering of information where I'm like, if I just know enough, Mm -hmm. then I'll be calm. And that is Ooh, that is so false. I I swear, (laughs) like the more medical information I gain, the worse off I am. But, you know, I tried that. I tried a lot of things, but I think what ultimately helps me the most, and I come back to this again and again and again, is reminding myself, actually verbalizing to myself that I have so little control over Mm -hmm. most things. I have to remind myself that I am not superhuman. I have this really sort of cocky streak of anxiety where I'm like, it's all up to me. (laughs) I've got to, I have to make sure everybody's okay. It's all up to me. If I can remind myself, no, it is not all up to you. Most things in the world, most things in your loved one's lives are not up to you. Certainly my own child's, you know, the electricity in his brain is not up to me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there is a point up to which you can take care of people and you can help people and you can, you know, drive people to doctor's appointments and cook healthy dinners and whatever. But beyond that, most things in people's lives are are not up to me to manage and to make safe and to make happy. And, and so as much as it's a bummer that that is true, like, wow, things really are not within my control. It's also kind of comforting to vocalize it and go, okay, you know what? I can go to sleep because staying awake isn't going to change anything. Most things are not within my control. That's it's a it's a really sort of peaceful thing to remind myself of. That's it's, fantastic. It's it's a lot like our philosophy of riding the wave mm-hmm. of anxiety. You know, you can't fix or stop anxiety. And in fact, the more you focus on trying to eliminate anxiety from your life, the more deeply it will dig itself into you. Yeah. Because it's just, that's the insidious thing about anxiety. It burrows. Yeah. And and so our own healing journeys began when we developed some kind of acceptance. We spent a lot of years fighting it. Yeah. A lot of years not riding the wave, trying to swim against the riptide and drowning every single time. You know, Mm -hmm. we were trying and it it was in our thirties when we really realized, okay, 
we're not going to be able to control these things. We are not going to be able to make it necessarily go away. This is how our amygdalas work. You know, yeah. Our brains yeah. love fight, flight, or freeze. That's <laughs> its favorite state. And we're going to be in it quite a bit. So <laughs> what can we do to live really well anyway? You know, what, yeah. can, what can we do? That, it's, you know, I hate to say it, but it goes back to the serenity prayer every time. It's yeah. The wisdom to know the difference between what you can control and what you can't. Mm-hmm. That's, I think maybe that is wisdom. It is. It's, yeah. It is. It is. And I, for me, I, it's a repetitive thing. I mean, I have to come back to it often <laughs> remind practice. myself this. Yeah, it is like that. You know what? It, most things are not within your control. That's, that's a great mantra. Yeah. Like we both have said that so many members of our community express to us their terrors as parents of something happening to their child, whether it be an illness or an accident or anything, right? Mm-hmm. That keeps parents up at night from the time they're born or before they're born. So, yeah. You know, so it's awfully hard to let go of that natural fear. It is. I know. And not to say that you're not afraid, but to, to be able to say, you know what? I, I can't be a bomb shelter. I'm not going to be able to see all the bombs. I find it helpful too to remind myself that this, you know, I, I act sometimes like it's just this terrible curse, this anxiety, like, oh, I've got this brain that's always catastrophizing. It's such a pain. But really, it's what my brain is doing is what Mother Nature mm-hmm. gave human brains. It's what Mother Nature gave human brains instead of a turtle shell or instead of, you know, really sharp claws or the ability to fly or whatever. Like every creature has some kind of built-in safety and defense mechanism. We really don't. Like our bodies are pretty squishy and easily breakable, but we do have these brains and these brains, you know, if you look back at like cave people from the very beginning of time, when humans started telling stories, they used storytelling to save each other. You know, you could sit uh, it, look, just if there's anyone listening who's like an anthropology major and you're like, no, you're getting all this wrong. Please forgive me. But in my imagination, anyway, <laughs> the cave people would sit around the fire and the cave parents would tell the little cave babies, you know, I'm going to tell you a story about Grog over there who ate the purple berries on the shrub and died. And it would scare the kids and they would be like, oh, I don't want that to happen to me. And they would not eat the purple berries on the shrub. And just like that, the catastrophizing mind and the ability to tell stories kept the kids safe. So what my brain is doing, this anxious thing it does, it's kind of what it was made to do. This is what Mother Nature gave us. As a, as a protective mechanism, it just sometimes gets a little out of control and I need to rein it in. Yeah. I mean, it is evolutionarily anxiety was to save us. It was to keep us alive. I am a huge believer that like the first thing you can do to alleviate the pain of any experience is alleviate the loneliness in it. So even if you cannot make any of the symptoms go away, even if you cannot change the situation itself in any way, just meeting or or corresponding with or hearing from one other human being who has been there, it's amazing how that makes everything feel better. And and that's part of why I read is I I love to read books that that make me go, oh, somebody else had that same thought I had. I'm not weird. I'm not the only one. Someone else thought this. And so I. it's also a reason I write. I write partly in order to give that feeling to other people. It's one of the most amazing things that that books do. That is the, I mean, that is part of the anxiety story too, because it's like, because we don't want to be out of the tribe, right? right? We, don't, 
we all want to be unique, but once you're out of the tribe, you're in trouble in terms of survival. So yes. we all have this really ancient need to be connected. Yes. All right, we're going to talk perfectionism. You ready? Because mm -hmm. I mean, you were definitely one of the writers that I felt was kind of close to my level of perfectionism, but not quite. I mean, no, nobody's as insane about getting things right as me. Um, <laughs> because because you are perfect at perfectionism. <laughs> yeah, and I strive to be better, better every day. I think that was the reason your book really caught me so much was because you were very honest about the fact that since you're a young child, you've always striven to be right like you've always felt like and you and you share that that feeling of it's not even about getting it right for yourself it's that you're not being a good wife daughter mother friend if you're not helping everybody else get it right too yeah and you know in your earlier book you had a, a come to moment where you're like you know what i'm not going to torture my friends anymore yeah i haven't done that yet i'm still trying to get my friends to be perfect too which nags deals with on a <laughs> But I, I mean, it's definitely part of that anxiety thing, right? For you too. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I, I wrote about this at, at length and I miss you when I blink. It, it all comes down to this feeling that I have to earn my right to exist. I have to prove I deserve to live by getting everything right. Because somewhere way, way, way back, who knows how this wiring got this way. It, you know, was it my parents? Was it DNA? Was it just, you know, a wacky little set of circumstances? No one knows. But somehow my brain got wired at a very early age to believe as long as I always have the right answer and I please everyone around me, my parents, my teachers, whatever, then I earn love and approval. Everyone needs love and approval every day of their lives. So that became this ongoing every day. Am I doing everything right? I have to do everything right or else I don't even deserve to be here, um, mm. which is dark and and not right. But it's, it's you know, it's how the wiring in my brain formed. And, and the older I got and the further I got into adulthood, especially when I got into that phase that I write about and I miss you when I blink, that that kind of reckoning with okay, how did I get here? And is this where I really want to be? I became more aware of the fact that I was doing that and was able to sort of consciously unwind it a little bit. I mean, it's not gone. I'm still a perfectionist, but I am more self-aware than I used to be. So I am able to modulate it a little bit. Have you become less of a people pleaser? Yes. Okay. I, I think that for me, that people pleasing is totally at the root. And so many of our anxiety sisters have had shared with us that whole, you know, Fawning. Yeah, it's fawning. It's fawning. because actually fawning is an anxiety response. Yeah, it's true. Well, and I wonder if this is the case for you as well. For me, writing for larger and larger audiences kind of by necessity tamped yeah. that down a little bit because you cannot please everyone with something you write. You just can't. So it that you know the knowledge that even even the best thing you've ever written is not going to be perfect in everyone's eyes, that can either shut you down and make you stop writing yeah. or you've got to let go of it. 
advice at least a for little bit. Do not read all your Amazon reviews, no matter how. Oh my God, don't read any of your Amazon. Don't read no, any read of the them. Good ones. Read <laughs> the good ones, but do not read the one stars because all you'll do is run around going, how can you possibly think that? You know, that you, know, you know where I think about this for you, Abby? Is one time Abby wrote something, a mistake that you felt that you had made on Facebook. You wrote, you, and you were writing about this mistake and you were really shaking. And it wasn't a mistake that was really hurtful to anyone in any way. And I, and I didn't understand why you were so upset writing about it. Right. It took me a long time to figure it out, you know, because feeling that sense of responsibility, like I can't screw up. I can't let anybody down. Yeah. And yeah. so you hint about it a lot in bomb shelter too. You're not, it's not as direct as in I miss you when I blink, but I, I found threads of it too. Oh, it's in, there. Yeah. In terms of recognizing how far you've come. Yeah. And, and yeah. That, that the journey is there too. It's all, it's a real journey book. Yeah. I think there's a lot, a lot there to hang your hat on really. Yeah. And, and that fawn response is something that particularly women, but women even who aren't perfectionists and we're trained to fawn yeah. to make whatever we need or just our being here. Okay. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely one of the things about being women yeah <laughs> is that way we've been taught to accommodate mm -hmm. yeah and i think that you know you mentioned parenting earlier and i think whether you're a, a woman or a man a mom dad whatever a, you know adult child with an elderly parent anytime you are in a caretaking role mm -hmm. i think that the perfectionism and the what you were talking about earlier and it it all kind of comes together in this very high stakes way. Like I have to take care of this person I love and I have to do it right. Or, you know, they could fall, they could feel sad, something bad could happen, you know, at its highest stakes level, they could die. You know, it, when you're worrying and, and having perfectionism, not just on your own behalf, but on behalf of the people you love, the stakes do feel higher, mm -hmm. which is a lot of what bomb shelter is about is, you know, I, I can control my own perfectionism all day long and do the best possible job at it. But then you introduce my greatest weakness, my Achilles heel, this, this need and desire to protect my children. And my, you know, my parents are in this book, my, you know, other people that I love when you bring in other people I love, well, that does make the perfectionism come back because I don't, I don't want to let someone I love get hurt. Right, because you talk um, about the caregiving role that you have, not just with your children, but also with your father. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a very powerful part of the book. And so many anxiety sisters talk to us about the various stresses of caregiving and how much extra anxiety they feel from it. Oh my gosh. And you, and you were commuting back and forth to a different town where your parents were living. And I mean, I think that that struck us as, wow, we have a lot of community members who talk to us about this. This is a really big deal for people. It's really hard to struggle with that anxiety of not only protecting your children, but <laughs> having to protect your parents too. That whole sandwich generation thing is tough, man. It is tough. That just the, like it, it, there's so much failure built into it. Like, it, and I think I actually have like a, a sentence in Bomb Shelter where I say this when you love more than one person at one time, whether it is two children or your mom and your kid or your mom and your dad or your sister and your best friend, whatever, when you love two people at the same time and one of them starts to go into crisis, 
you are going to fail at taking care of everyone adequately all the time because you're going to put your arms out to catch whoever's falling. And sure enough, that'll be when the other one falls because you're not paying attention. And that it's just kind of built into the sandwich generation time of life. You know, when you have, say, a child who is dealing with health problems or a spouse or whoever in your family, it changes the shape of your family because you can't be there equally for everyone when when someone's in crisis. And the kid that I was constantly paying the most attention to was my daughter because she had asthma and, and she was also allergic to everything. Like she's allergic to everything outside. So she could never breathe. And I felt like, you know, our days were structured around, you know, giving her the breathing treatment. And if we went outside, making sure, did she bring her bag of Kleenex because she was constantly blowing her nose? Like that was the thing all my attention was on. It was like, okay, I've got one kid who can just never breathe. And I've got to always be doing whatever I have to do to make sure this kid can breathe. And then, you know, sure enough, you go 10 years into the future. And asthma seems like child's play now compared to now the other kid has got electrical storms going on in his brain. And if we've got to go see the neurologist and, and try different drugs and write down the dosage every day and figure out which one works. And, you know, it, it, you're right. It does change the shape and the, the texture of family life when there is one person who needs a lot of care and boy, it gets interesting when more than one person does, you know, when you're like, I can handle this, I can handle this. That's the person who I, I got to really focus on. Okay. And then, oh, somebody else has a problem. And then it's like, okay, we've gone up to an advanced level of like juggling caretaking, which is what that, you know, sandwich generation is all about. Yeah. So it's like eggs in the air. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you just, and sometimes you have to say, all right, which one am I going to let crack? I, there's something's going to have to break because there's no way to catch all of these eggs. And particularly for people who do it on their own. I mean, you know, you're very fortunate that you have this wonderful husband and a really supportive family and, and lots of people are lucky to have that. We have so many people in our community who are on their own. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they're also managing a child who may not be well, along with ailing parents, Yep. And in that case, the egg that you let crack is always yourself. But, yeah. You know, when you don't have support and you don't have, a, you know, teammates helping you do stuff, generally it's yourself that yes. that gets neglected. Yeah. I think with so many women, it's ourselves almost no matter who's on our team. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> seems so easy her. and natural like I, i'll notice it even between my husband and i like he'll feel so much more comfortable entitled i would say but comfortable <laughs> like being like no this is what i need for me yeah. and despite what everyone else needs i need this right. and i mm -hmm. would much more struggle with that there was this great study that came out a long time ago now but i think in the 70s it came out and it was men and women feeding toddlers <laughs> so, and, and, and no, it was, and this was so indicative. We all of my, know what this looks like. No, this is like this yeah. is my life. I remember bringing the study home and showing my husband, saying, "See, this is what I'm talking about." They, they watched these households to see who served whom first. So the moms, of course, prepared the full meal for the toddler, along with the drink, and That's so then funny. made herself something, and then got up several times from her meal 
to bring a napkin to you know get more juice more applesauce yeah. to wipe a spill to bring a different dinner yeah. whatever it was like so many of the mothers ended up leaving over some of their food because they just kept getting up after a while they said forget mm -hmm. it i'm not even hungry and it was something some ridiculously high number i want to say like 88 percent of the men made yes. their own meal first of course sat down at the table ate yes. their meal and then got up and made for the kid and by the way the kid was fine the kid sat on the floor and played well, that's i mean the thing but but, but yeah it, there's a lesson in that <laughs> always would like when i would leave my husband with the kids i would always say fix them dinner first then yours first theirs they go that first. is so because, what an and, and he's a nurturing story. guy it's just yeah you know, what kinds of things do you do to manage your anxiety? You know, meditation and sending certain politicians up to the moon is one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in my imagination, shooting people into space. Um, I, being outside is like medicine for me. So if I can get outside, I live in a part of Nashville that is technically within the city limits of Nashville, but a lot of the natural world is around me. I live on a hill. It's very wooded. There, you know, at the end of my street, there's a pasture with donkeys and I live really close to a state park. So if I can get outside for a little while every day, that is huge, yeah. huge, huge, huge. I mean, that is like medicine for me. I used to think that I was happiest, least anxious, did my best work when I was multitasking. I used to think that like my best way of living is just juggling a whole bunch of different jobs at the same time. And when the pandemic happened, and I found myself at home really with only one job, which was to finish writing Bomb Shelter. Um, and my life got a lot smaller and a lot simpler in the way that, that many people's did. I was so much happier and less anxious. And so as the world has opened up and more opportunities have come my way and I could go back to that, that level of, you know, hyper juggling multitasking. I've been trying to consciously keep my my existence and my sort of life footprint kind of small and stay home a little more and really I mean I've obviously been on book tour this year so that's a that's a kind of unusual thing but I feel like that sort of exists within its own bubble but in my daily life really kind of keeping it as close as I can to how it was during the pandemic mm -hmm. simple really only socializing when I truly want to with people I truly want to see, mm -hmm. not saying yes to every single thing, uh, saying no much more frequently, not just to, to social things, but to work things that I don't want to do. Um, I am less anxious that way. Hmm. So I was wrong all those years that I was like, I thrive on multitasking. <laughs> It is. You know what? We justify our own reality all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. When we're running around like chickens, we will very often say our brains want to confirm that this is the right way to be. So we're going to say, oh, I'm, I do best like this. We've been chatting with Mary Laura Philpott, a gifted writer whose latest memoir, Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives is out now and available wherever books are sold. And as always, we'll plug for the actual physical store where you can buy a book. If, if you Thank can. you. If yes. you can. If Please. you can. We yeah. like that. Um, and we know our listeners love audiobooks. So we just want to let you know that Mary Laura reads her own books. So she's an excellent narrator. Definitely check it out. Thank you so much, Mary Laura, for taking time out of your really yeah. super busy schedule to chat with us. 
we feel so lucky that you're well, with us. Well, the schedule's a little less busy now. So <laughs> she's chosen that. There's, she she chose, and she's made it us. very clear that she says no to work things yes. she doesn't want to do. So yes. she could have said no. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That is exactly right. Thank you so much. Thank you for yeah. joining us. I really, yeah. really appreciate it. Once again, the book is Bomb Shelter. And the earlier book is I Miss You When I Blink, also a fantastic read. We it's... do have some announcements. Well, and... the first announcement is about our retreat. Yes. Very exciting We're going away. We're taking you with us, 14 women and us, to Chester, Connecticut. Yes. It's a weekend with the Anxiety Sisters, a long weekend. That's Starting going. in the evening of December 1st, which yes. is a Thursday, coming home on Sunday the 4th where we picked this beautiful location in the woods right near a cute town of Chester, Connecticut. It is literally two hours from New York, two hours from Boston. You can fly into Hartford. There's a train station that's 20 minutes away. Yeah, train is very easy. That Boston to Washington train. Yeah. We have done these retreats before the pandemic times, and they were the best, most fun things that we've ever done. Yeah. We just, we love them. Um, it's kind of like summer camp. Yes, for anxiety. For anxiety, <laughs> right. Yes. And we, you know, we're anxiety sisters. We don't zip line. So if you're interested in hearing more about our retreat, then yeah. you can go to our website, anxietysisters.com. It's right there on the front page. Or you can email us, anxietysisters at gmail.com. Or you can visit us at Facebook and Father Maggie, private message her. So, okay. So that's about our retreat. So check that out. What's the other? Oh, our other announcement is our monthly book groups. I thought you were going to say our monthly periods. I was like, yeah, those have been gone. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they need to know that, but our monthly book groups are back. It's, you know, our free monthly webinar on Facebook Live. It's usually the first Tuesday of the month at 7 p.m. But you know what? Just go on our website under events and make sure that we didn't change a date because of a holiday. So where can they find us, Meg? Oh, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. And, you know, this season, we are not going to beg you for reviews for our podcast. But please, just could you just leave us a review once? Just one review. All right. That's all okay. we'll say. Okay, right. and the last thing we want to say is we want you to remember that. No, first you have to say thank you so much oh, for joining. You never God. read the script. Okay, I okay, write I'm the damn sorry. script every Thank time. you so much for joining us. And remember, anxiety, anxiety sisters, sisters don't go it alone. alone. Woo! Okay, now we're done. You've been listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.